0: This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami Podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations from Season Three, Episode Fifty-One. Our first preview of Liver Meeting Twenty-Twenty-Two, plus from the Vault, a section from our Liver Meeting Twenty-Twenty-One coverage that includes predictions of what we might learn next week in D.C. This conversation begins returning to the theme that NAFLD is not a disease of affluence. I note that Zobair Yunus's data reveals extremely high rates of NAFLD in the Middle East and North Africa region, a region not known for the wealth of its residents. Jeff McIntyre discusses growth in easy-to-access, overprocessed, low-nutrition foods as a villain and says, if anything, it's not a question of ease of access or which foods are easy to access. He goes on to note that this is a challenging disease around which to motivate patients, but that these issues around overprocessed versus natural foods might help. George Schottenberg suggests another issue that might help, noting that D is a precursor to hepatic cell carcinoma and, in many patients, HCC comes before they progress to cirrhosis. Jeff and I had comments expanding on this point, with me noting that NAFLD is a predictor to a range of non-liver cancers as well. Stephen Harrison states that if all we do is to raise awareness of the need to treat, we've accomplished quite a lot. The rest of the conversation centers around ways to improve NAFLD awareness and, in the closing question, one important thought about the meeting each panelist wants to raise before we return next week to continue this preview discussion. As Jorn Schottenberg comments early in this episode, it is amazing how much data and energy will emerge from this meeting. So much that we are going to continue our preview episode next week. This is a great stuff. So listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. As I was listening, and Jeff, one of the thoughts I had was that you look at uh, Zobear's global numbers, and the highest rates in the world are in the Middle East and North Africa, not an area known for affluence, right?
1: Jeff McIntyre.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it really speaks to the rise in overprocessed, easy to access food. If anything, the question isn't access. The question is which foods are being accessed. It's about cheap, high calorie, low nutritional value foods. And we're seeing, unfortunately, the rise of Western influence in that way, and the spread of that sort of corporate food culture is really contributed to this. We're kind of downstream now in dealing with the disease effects of poor nutrition, of lack of physical activity, all this the lifestyle sort of things. And it's difficult to get people to pay attention to that a little bit, especially with fatty liver disease, where they may not be as symptomatic. But as Stephen mentioned early on, even seeing you know people with F2 being able to be diagnosed and biopsy confirmed, there's still hope for being able to get interventions in there. And this is a great example of that, of where we can be able to begin to make some of those differences in ways that patients feel empowered. And if we can empower them there, then they're going to feel more empowered throughout the process.
1: Yeah, Jeff, just one comment. You know, it's difficult to get focused for the disease because you said it's silent. But we have to remind that this is a pre-carcinogenic condition. You know, patients develop hepatocellular carcinoma, which is a severe complication of NASH, even in the pre-serotic stage. So by addressing cancer burden, we have to tackle this disease.
2: That's well said that a colleague of mine remarked the other day that contrary to working in pediatric and rare or fatty liver disease or whatnot, we're all working. And liver cancer eventually. And
0: not only liver cancer, in that NAFLD and NASH are predictive of many other kinds of cancers as well. Indeed. And worse prognosis for people who get them. So yeah, I think it's extremely well said and important to note.
1: Stephen Harrison.
3: If we don't do anything more than educate our providers, all providers, that fatty liver is just not something you brush aside, then we are going to make progress. I don't know how many times I see patients every week in clinic, and I see them at the advanced stage. And I'm telling them for the first time, they have advanced liver disease or they have cirrhosis and they will tell me 20 years ago my doctor said I had fatty liver and he didn't seem concerned about it and he didn't tell me to do anything about it (laughs) so I, I think at a minimum we have to deliver that message even more so than trying to give them a tool to rule out or rule in disease. Let's just identify that fatty liver needs something done to it, right? It is the canary in the coal mine for metabolic dysregulation. No fatty liver is a good fatty liver unless you're a goose and you like pate. But having said that,
0: I... I, Although it's funny because the Fatty Liver Alliance in Canada, Stephen, in French, they describe themselves as foie gras. And every time I look at that,
2: I kind of do a double take. Yeah, and I don't think that turns out well for the goose either, in that instance. (laughs) No,
3: it doesn't. And by the way, the new meta-analysis done by Zobare that's online in hepatology shows actually the number one demographic on the planet for fatty liver is Latin American, 44%, which gets at the exact same comments you made, Jeff, about the food quality. And this is where what I affectionately say in South Texas, and probably could be extrapolated into Central America and South America, is this is where genetics meets tortilla poisoning. Well,
0: Stephen, you wouldn't be here, it wouldn't be a Harrison episode if we didn't have one thing to take away that we would not heard before that was of vivid visual value. So I think you've just nailed it. Thank you. We're going to have time for only one more of these today. I might invite everybody back next week to do a second round of this. We're going to celebrate our 100,000 downloads, but there's so much stuff in this meeting, it might be more important to talk again about the meeting. Stephen, I think part of the key to educating people that fatty liver matters is to put in their face how many people have it in ways that are easy to manage electronically, right? I mean, I've said this a thousand times on this podcast that the major thing that happened with cholesterol was they got the reference labs to change from 95th percentile to 300 milligrams per deciliter at that point in time, which now is outrageously high, but in the late 80s, it wasn't. And uh, all of a sudden, people were seeing 30% of their patients popping up in red. Right now, we don't really have good ways to show primary care how much fatty liver exists, period. It's one of the reasons people are pushing for. 4 But there's an interesting poster. It's in the 2300s, 20 through twenty-eight, so it's a little bit obscure in the number. This was a Scripps Wellness. Because there are a bunch of these. At Scripps Wellness, they went and they identified algorithmically a bunch of patients in their practice. They were looking for patients who were at high risk. And otherwise, unidentified, they identified 269 patients who either had high FIF4 scores, had high risk FIF4 scores, and were under the age of 75. They um, ran an algorithm, sent them to doctors, and when they got them treated, it turned out that 36% of them were F3, F4, all unrecognized. In the Mayo paper, it turns out that an AI assisted read on ECG could get an a- AROC of uh, 0.71 assessment were uh, at FIB4 and 0.56. So th- the thought is we need to do a better job in primary care of putting in people's face how many patients there are. Several different studies about different ways to do that. But that's, I think, going to be a major theme going forward. There's a ton of that in this meeting, and we'll talk about more maybe, as I say, next week or soon. We're coming up on the hour. So first of all, I'm serious. I would like to invite you all to come back next week, bring more papers with you. We'll get Louise will join us, maybe one or two other people. And let's do round two of this conference, because I think where Jorn started was right. There's so much rich data in this conference and so many exciting ideas is that we're only beginning to touch on them. And it seems self-indulgent to throw ourselves a party when we could be talking about the importance of this conference instead. So let's just close with this. First of all, I think everybody, Jeff, you're the only one who wasn't invited for next week. So if everyone can make it back, that's great. And then close with one thought that we didn't get to in this hour that has to do with this meeting that you think is an important thing to just kind of leave dangling in the air. We can come back to it next week. Brave one, go first.
1: Jaren Schottenberg. You know, I've looked at many more abstracts that struck my mind and struck me as interesting around therapy and everything. But the one I revisited today and the data as discussed by the others just shows there's well-defined high-risk populations. We have tools to identify them. We'll get diagnostics and therapeutics across the finish line to finally treat this disease for the best of our patients. I'm very convinced of that. And I think this ASOD will move us closer and close some of the gaps that we're looking at. Amen.
3: Next, I would just echo those sentiments and say that, like with anything, we have to go through a lot of failures and learn from those failures to get good at anything that we do. I mean, again, another analogy, WD40. that lubricant had to fail 39 times to get to success at WD-40. If it had stopped at WD-39, we wouldn't have that lubricant today. So if we would have stopped after the eight or nine or 10 drug failures that we've seen in NASH, we wouldn't be here. You'll see at this liver meeting, there are so many drugs that are doing remarkable things for our patients with NASH that it is just super exciting. And we're not going to be able to talk about them all on this podcast. We highlighted a couple couple before. There are more to come. You got to make it to the meeting. You got to stay tuned for these sessions, a lot of them, but in particular, the therapeutic sessions, because it's going to be front page news type stuff. And I'm not even speaking to you know the Maestro Nash data, which I don't think is going to be presented at the meeting, but all the other exciting bits of data to include what we didn't talk about today, the rework of the Regenerate Phase 3 trial. Using new methodology, Arun Senyal is going to be presented that as a late breaker. So, uh, boy, stay tuned.
1: Jeff McIntyre.
2: Um, hear, hear, and amen to all of that. Stephen and Yorn talk about how exciting they are and about how much wealth of data there is going to be brought forward. Maybe it was the pandemic. Maybe it was going through some of the you know clinical trial craziness we had earlier on. But it's really nice to be coming into a meeting where there's genuine excitement and even, you know, sprinkled with a little bit of optimism around a couple of things. There are things from a patient perspective or things that we're looking out for a little bit certainly the late breakers, and we know that there are some things that will probably get an outsized amount of attention, such as, you know, the nomenclature conversation that we'll be coming back to at a later date. I also referenced earlier on was the NAFLD guidelines. I think they are on schedule to probably be released before the conference starts, but I don't know that they'll be released in time for there to be actual formal programming around it. And so I'd anticipate that hopefully the NAFLD guidelines will be out there and it'll be at least guidelines that will provide a subtext to a lot of the conversation going on around NAFL and NASH NASH at the meeting itself.
0: Okay, thanks, Jeff. And so my closing comment for today is I think that was a really neat transition from drugs to guidelines, because given the scale of this disease around the world, we can't, as, as Jeff Lazarus repeatedly says, hepatology can't go it alone. We need everybody in the healthcare system to play on this everywhere. And it's hard to motivate primary care, and it's hard to motivate other specialties to play and to treat fatty liver like it matters when, A, they don't, get the problem and B, you can't treat it anyway, or they believe you can't treat it with drugs anyway. So the energy around the drugs and the energy around the guidelines go hand in hand because these are the two things that we're going to need to get this disease treated. People energized to do it and then drugs do it with, and those two really work together. I agree. I think it's going to be an amazing, exciting meeting.
1: And now back to Roger.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingmash.com. We'll be back next week to continue our preview of next month's Liver Meeting 2022. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We look forward to seeing you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.